There's one thing I really like about St. Patrick's Day, and it, it's, it comes in the form of a box. And that box has the words on it, Lucky Charms. How many of you guys like Lucky Charms? Can I see some hands there? Even my sister raised her hand. I appreciate that. I love Lucky Charms, right? And so for me, this is the way a Lucky Charms box goes. I crack it open. I pour a pretty big bowl full, pour in some milk, and I start to eat. Now, I don't worry about the sogginess ever. One, they hold out the, the milk pretty well, and I eat them fast enough. But as soon as the marshmallow, the Lucky Charms are all gone... I take the box and I pour again. How many of you are like me on that? Okay, I do see some hands and I appreciate you. I want there to be Lucky Charms in the Lucky Charm bowl if I'm eating that, right? I could eat the other stuff plain, that'd be fine. But if I'm in a Lucky Charm mood, that's where I'm going. Now, if we rewinded a few years back to middle school for my oldest two, Noah and Ethan, uh, and the other two, Abby and Cole, may have done this, but I don't remember it as you, if you've had you know, a family where there's like four kids and they're pretty close together. By the time the third and fourth are coming through, you kind of miss some things. Uh, they get away with things that their siblings say they would have never gotten away with, etc. etc. Anyways, let me get back to my story. They, Ethan and Noah would pour the box out on the table and eat the marshmallows and then shove the cereal back into the bag. Now, when I saw that happen, uh, I put a stop to that. But I'm like, you can't do that. We got to eat the Lucky Charms and the cereal, and we got to do that together. And if I, (laughs) thinking back, there were times, I think, when I poured bowls, and I was like, where are all the charms? Like, do I need to bring this back? There's no charms in here, and I think now I know why. Putting two and two together here. But everybody likes the Lucky Charms, like the marshmallows. I don't know that I've met somebody. I'm not saying that there isn't. But I don't know that I've met somebody that says, hey, I buy Lucky Charms for the still sugar-coated piece of cereal, right? I mean, they just don't do it. You either like them or you don't because of that marshmallow. And and you're probably sitting there going, okay, Pastor Mark, how are you landing this thing? We got St. Patrick's Day, and we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, Samuel and 1 Samuel 4. I will land it later in the sermon, but I am a little bit off topic talking about cereal. But I just wanted to wish everybody a happy Sunday, get you guys back to your seats, uh, and, and, and then we'll continue on in our study of First and Second Samuel. Uh, I'm really excited about this sermon series. We're going into week four. It's going to run about a year. Uh, and so if you're a math guy like me, simple math, let me, let me clarify, simple math. I'm thinking ahead of next week, week five, and being like, we're going to be a tenth of the way through this book. Like, that's where my brain goes, right? So, uh, or through this series, I should say. But I'm really excited about it. Today, we're going to keep looking at lessons from leaders. And if you've been here all, all, all the other four weeks or three weeks building into this one, you'll remember that some lessons we're going to learn from these leaders are good. And some of these lessons are things that they did wrong or bad. And so we can learn from them by doing the opposite. Uh, and so again, we're going to be looking at lessons from leaders. And today we're going to be in first Samuel chapter four. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them. Obviously we're going to have the words up here on the screen, join you to, 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 you know, so that you can read along up there. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's word, let that be a gift from us to you today. We have some back on our grab a Bible table. And even while I'm talking, you're welcome to get up, go back there and grab one of those, put your name in it, make it your own. And then that way you can take notes in there, circle things, highlight things, maybe write down questions that you'll ask in your community group later in the week, that sort of thing. Let that be a gift from us to you. 
For those few that may have either missed a week over the last three weeks or today is your first Sunday, we're going to do a quick catch up on 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel finds God's people, Israel, living in the promised land. So this is really cool, right? They've come out of Egypt. They've come back home. They're living in the promised land. But... As we know from the stories that have come before this, uh, they are living in the promised land surrounded by enemies. They don't have a lot of friendly nations around them. It seems like there are enemies all over the place, all around them. And Israel is living there. They've, they've had priests who were the, the go-between between man and God. Uh, and that goes all the way back. And, and so there was this priestly line. And then they had come out of a season of judges. And, and the, the people, the Israelites, are really looking at the other nations going, we want a king. And so that conversation is at least kind of started. Uh, but we're really focusing in right now at this part of 1 Samuel on the priests. Uh, and, and one specifically was Eli. Eli and his sons. And, and they have led the nation astray. If you've been here these last three weeks and you've been listening to the stories and and you can kind of see through it being so many years ago, you see really just how gross this was. The men that were leading Israel that should have been the go-between between the people and God were stealing from God. They were literally stealing the sacrifices before they were sacrificed and they were eating them and getting fat on them. They kind of felt like they were above the law. Then, uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw that there was uh, some, some uh, sexual abuse going on between the priests and women who came to serve there. And that abuse was just grotesque. Uh, and again, I don't want to skim over those things. We got to know that Israel's in a bad place right now. The temple uh, in Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant, where God resides, Right? This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the main temple. And these things were going on there. And, and so again, it's just, it, this is a bad time uh, in Israel's history right here. And, and it's really, really sad. So we have all this moral failure going on uh, of the priests and his sons who were supposed to come up behind them. Him and the priestly line to become the next priests. Um, And then at the very beginning though, so we're kind of going almost backwards in these chapters. So going back to to chapter one, we see this incredible story or the intro to this incredible story about this young man, Samuel. We see a mom who's praying to God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the service of you forever. And you know what? God gives her a son. And she does what she promised. So young Samuel goes to the temple. And even under Eli's leadership or lack thereof. In in, in that he wasn't a great leader. Samuel grows in the knowledge and understanding of God. And he serves God. We see that multiple times uh, through these first few chapters. And, and, And this is really incredible. That Samuel could be raised in this environment. And yet God protected him. God spoke to Samuel last week, and Samuel heard, and Samuel was faithful to God's word, and this is really cool. So these, the winds of change are blowing, right? Imagine yourself in the Middle East, in the desert, and the wind's blowing. I've never been there, but I'm I'm just kind of talking. The winds are blowing, right? That's going to happen in in Israel, right? And so as I was looking at this this week, I was like, okay, Israel's not responding to, to God, 
They're not honoring God. They're not living in a, in a way that was holy. They're living in sin and rebellion, right? And that be, because they're allowing these priests to lead them and they're turning a blind eye to the sin that everyone, we know from chapter two, everyone knew these sins were going on and yet they just turned a blind eye to it, right? They didn't react to sin in the proper way. And, and so now you have a wounded nation, you have the first theocracy, the only theocracy at the time, uh, the, a nation that was following God, one true God, and, and that relationship has been uh, severely wounded. And as a nation, under the leadership of, of Eli, um, it, 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 they were just in a really bad place. And Eli was oblivious to it. He turned a blind eye. He thought the sin was too great to try to deal with, uh, uh, you know, of his sons. It was, it was not good at all. He participated in some ways and, and chose to ignore what he saw. And, and again, this passivity would be the end of, of him. You can't deal with sin with more sin. And you can't deal with sin by ignoring it. And both of those things were going on. So we're hopping into 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to look at this rebellion that's going on. This sin that's going on. Not only by the priests, but also by the, the, the people, the children of Israel. God's chosen people are choosing to ignore sin. And, and we want to look today and see that really it all boils down to your response to sin. Your response to the rebellion that you're tempted to move forward in. And that the real answer to that is repentance. There's only one thing to do, and that is repent. And chapter 4 is going to show us this today. Israel, this, this wounded relationship with God, this egregious sin before the Lord by the leaders that should have been leading them and pointing them towards the Lord uh, have just been highlighted over these first four chapters, and we're going to see the consequence of it. Now, here we are in 1 Samuel 4, and, and the Israelites are going to learn the hard way that you cannot deal with sin by committing more sin. There's only one thing that we can do, and that is repent. So let's dive into God's word here, and let's start reading in verse 1. Of chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, the first part of that is, is huge. The first verse there, we kind of touched on it a little bit last week, but we want to start there again this week. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. This wasn't just the word of, of God through Samuel to Shiloh or to that community. But remember, I popped up that map last week from Dan to Beersheba. Like they were hearing about God engaging with Samuel in a way that Eli had not been able to do because of the sin in his life in a very long time, if ever. And so Samuel was becoming, as a young, young man, well known for being a, a, a priest who was going to listen to God. 
And so we don't want to skip over verse 1 there. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel and just kind of blow by that and get into the rest of the chapter. Because this is huge. People were realizing that the new voice from God was going to be Samuel. And the first sentence in this text remind us of that. That Eli had failed. They had sinned. They, they weren't in repentance. And they just continued on in that way. And yet Samuel had continued to grow close to the Lord. He's heard the Lord's voice. Um, two different times in, in the first three chapters, a prophecy was given that Eli's family was going to be judged harshly. And as far as we can tell, Eli did nothing about it. Remember, you had the unnamed prophet, and then you had Samuel, both giving the same prophecy to Eli the priest, and yet nothing changed. And here, like I said, we can see Samuel already starting to replace Eli in the priestly role by being noticed and heard by all of Israel. Later in our study in this book, we're going to see some good examples of what we can do when we're confronted with our own sin. Unfortunately, today's text won't be that. God has, has promised that there's going to be an out with the old, Eli and his family, uh, and in with the new. And we saw that in those two prophecies, uh, and, and we're going to see that kind of that story today. At first glance here, it says, now Israel went out into battle against the Philistines. It kind of seems like just storytelling. Uh, and yet we'll know from later on in, in Samuel, but also in other books, that, that there's something key missing from this that, that's there when God sends his people out to battle. There's no mention of God here. So again, we have a people under an ineffectual leadership going to war. And as far as we can tell, this war wasn't one that God necessarily called them to engage in. Right In 1st and 2nd Kings, we, we observe this godly practice of asking God, do we go to war with these people or not? How do we respond to this aggression? Right, And they wait on the Lord. And here, that is missing. They didn't do this. So we're living in this period of sin and leadership that's ineffectual, uh, because of the sin and the rebellion that's present. And we see what happens here. There's a battle, and it costs Israel 4,000 men in that one battle on that one day. Let's continue on here in the story, picking up in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from or here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So as the, as the, the surviving soldiers get back to camp, they're, they're licking their wounds, right? And they're trying to figure out what happened. That's exactly what the leaders, the eldership said. What happened? Why did God, they don't even give credit to the Philistines. Why did God defeat us today? Why has the Lord defeated us here in front of the Philistines? Israel 
was a country that was founded, a people, I should say, on this theocracy with God as their only king, as their ruler. So even when they were acting out in rebellion or sin towards that concept, they knew it. And that's why the leadership here goes, wait a second, why would God allow this to happen? God is the one who's powerful enough to defeat any enemy no matter what the cost. And they had stories after stories in their history where they saw God come through for them. But he also is the one who loves Israel enough. He loves his people enough to discipline them, right? When they're in sin, when they're in rebellion, when they're not acting the way that they should, God loves his people enough to discipline them. And this was part of the heavy hand of discipline, And the elders were correct to say that the Lord himself was the one who defeated them. That it wasn't the Philistines. Because there was this history of battles and victories that were secured by the Lord. Even when they were severely outnumbered. Even when everything said they should lose. God would continue to come through for them. Now unfortunately it goes downhill from there. They, 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 they bring up this idea of God. They're, they're at least acknowledging maybe they're not, uh, you know, that the, there's something off, but it doesn't get better because they're, they're armed with correct information about the battle, that God was the one who defeated them. But now they've come to this ridiculous conclusion that they're going to move forward in. The Ark of the Covenant was portable. Uh, and, and the and the priests would carry it, and and as the people exited Egypt, the the ark went before them, God before His people, and, and there was a lot of symbolization in that. The box was about three and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide and high, and it symbolized God's presence, His power, His favor, and that's why the ark went before the people. With this very valuable thing and, and, and this, this uh, representation of God where he enthrones and, and, and is with his people, you would think you would keep that in the back to protect it. And yet, no, they knew they wanted God going before them. When they got to Shiloh, Shiloh set up the temple. We talked about the temple going from a tent to more of a, a structured building. That is where God had the Ark of the Covenant placed, that God would reside with his people there. And Eli and his sons uh, and the priests would be the ones that would be the go-between between the people and God. God's favor was resting on his people. And, and so the presence of that Ark was very important to the people. Now, they wanted the Ark because they thought, if we have this lucky charm, if we have this token, if we have this trinket of sorts, if we have God here in the camp, maybe that will go well for us. Again, they're not seeking God. They're going after what they want. And we see that here. God wanted to be with his people. And that was the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. But it didn't mean that the people could use the ark for whatever they wanted to. This was a graciously uh, given gift by God to his people to show Israel, uh, to give them a, a visual of God dwelling with them. It wasn't a lucky rabbit's foot. It wasn't a lucky charm. 
It wasn't something to use however they wanted to. Notice the words, that it, right? Should be underlined there. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I know you might say, Mark, you're splitting hairs, but it's true. They're talking about the ark. They're not talking about God. They're missing the point. They know about God. They know about the ark. They know the, the, the stories that, that were surrounding the ark of the covenant and it going before his people. But they weren't saying, hey, wait a second. We messed up. We didn't acknowledge God. We need to talk about God. We need to get him back here and have him go before us. God, do you even want us to fight this battle? They said, hey, if we could get the ark of the covenant to camp, maybe we'll have better luck. So they were thinking about this. In such a way that they decided to move forward and, and defile, really, what God had created the ark to be or wanted the ark to be, that representation. They wanted to use it in battle. If at best the elders wanted the power of God, they still weren't inviting the presence of God into their lives, in amongst the people. Even if they were saying, if we bring the ark, God will come with and he will do the battling for us. They're still missing out on the repentance of the sin that was plaguing their country. That was surrounding this. They wanted God to give them the benefits, but they didn't necessarily want to continue on in, in, in love and in a loving relationship, and in one that, that acknowledges this transgression. They just wanted the benefits with no commitment. In 1 Samuel 15, we'll get there in a few weeks, or a couple months probably, Samuel will utter this famous quote. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God desires relationship. It was no different back in the Old Testament as it is today. And when we get there in 1 Samuel 15, this will make more sense in the story. But that is the same thing that's going on here. God desired relationship. His people to be uh, obedient to his word. That's what he wanted from his people. And it should come as no surprise here in those last couple of verses that when the Ark of the Covenant comes, Hopney and Phineas, the diabolical duel, accompany this Ark for self, uh, selfish and, and really sinful endeavors to try to win a battle that they weren't even called to be. Now we're going to read a chunk here to get the next part of the story starting in verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves 
to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now, after this 18 mile or so trek to the, to the battle site, we hear that the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp and the Israelites go crazy. Right? Here's this, here's this show of God, this token that will go before them, that will bring them all this good luck. Right? And they go crazy. Now, every man that was there, the priests, Hopney and Phineas, the elders, the soldiers, they all should have known better. Now, they should have been on their knees before God, repenting of their rebellion against him and pleading for his mercy. If the Ark of the Covenant is where God resides, God has now shown up in camp. And the sin that they have been living in needed to be repented from. They should have been pleading for that mercy. Instead, they they put their faith in this simple representation of the presence of God. That's all they cared about. If the ark shows up, we can't lose. Rather than seeking God himself. And and the response of the Philistines is is fascinating. I think, you know, God inspired the writing of the the Holy Scriptures. So we have to look at every word. And I think it's kind of interesting to read what they said there. And I think it's an accurate response. They're correct to fear God of the Hebrews. But their, their theology, their storytelling, their recalling of what had happened was a little bit off. And you have to kind of say, okay, well, they probably didn't get the whole story. Right? This is an enemy. But they assume that Israel, like themselves and every other nation, was polytheistic. We see a lowercase g and we see an s. There are multiple gods of the Israelites in their mind. And so there's these gods that have now showed up to camp. Now, while they're, they're wrong about that, while they are correct about God striking the Egyptians with plagues, they're incorrect as to where they were struck with the plagues in the wilderness instead of in Egypt. And while they assume that the shout that they heard indicated that God had entered the camp, from what we know of the story, we'll get there in a second, God is actually on their side in this battle. So the Philistines were wrong. Everything they thought, the three different things that we can kind of go back to, they were wrong. They were off, right? And, and they say to themselves, woe to us. Like they're scared. Woe to us. But the Philistines were mighty, right? They were a thorn in the side of many nations, Israel included. And so they say twice in this statement to be men, to be men, to be ready to battle, And so this dramatic turn of events, the ark's entry into the Israelite camp actually strengthens the resolve of the Philistine soldiers, the ones they were just in battle in. So let's pick up here in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. Are we repeating the same? No, this isn't, this is a second battle. We're not repeating. This is another battle. Continues on there. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So if you thought losing 4,000 just a couple of verses ago, right? One battle ago was bad. On this day, they lost 30,000. Not only that, though, the Philistines capture the Ark of God 
and kill the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. We see the prophetic words, both of the unnamed man and of Samuel, coming to pass. Picking up in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day and his clothes were torn and and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting in his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city, he told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came And told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead And the ark of God has been captured. Now, a runner like this is is common. They didn't have, you know, the the postal service. And we all know when you're waiting on a letter or a package, sometimes the postal service is in the quickest. That's not a knock if anybody out there works for the postal service. But this guy was a runner. All he did was go from the battle line back to town or from a town back to the battle line, right? So he was dedicated. If you had, you know, a a dedicated mail carrier that only took your mail wherever it needed to go, that would be more of what we're talking about this. So this was common. Now the, the clothes torn, the dirt on the head, those were common ways of mourning. So whether it was just from the battle itself or along the way or, or however he was trying to get there quickly, when he arrived, his appearance was that of mourning, which is what it should have been in light of what happened. So the people who saw him coming probably knew this wasn't a good sign. However, we see again that Eli here is sitting by the road, probably by the gate or one of the gates, waiting for news. And it's important to notice that Eli is said to have been trembling for the ark of God. So that is an interesting uh, notation there. I don't know that Eli was necessarily excited about the ark leaving Shiloh. And yet, he wasn't able to, whether it was because of his age his rebellious sons, or just the people, keep it from happening. And God hasn't given us those words. We don't know for sure here in this story. And so we have a little bit of speculation. But it does say that he was trembling because of the ark of God. We remember back to the earlier stories. His eyesight was already poor at this point of light. And, and we've kind of said that this is it, it's a picture of where his spiritual life was also. His eyes that should have been seeing and discerning the things from God were also dimmed. And he wasn't making wise choices at this point. But he was blind. He's sitting at the gate and he hears the outcry, the, 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 the wailing of the people in the city. And he becomes more concerned. Notice in verse 17 though, uh, the author builds this suspense with his statements, each worse than the last, right? He builds on that. Israel fled before the Philistines. Well, that's bad, right? I mean, that, that's not a good thing. He, he says, they fled before it. And, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Oh, so not only did we lose the battle, but we lost a lot of men. And then he goes on and he says, your two sons also, 
Hophni and Phineas are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. The, the way that the author builds the suspense as you read that, each thing worse than the last. Israel's leaders, uh, and indeed most of the nation, had walked away from the glory of God. We've seen this, slowly walking away, wanting to become more like the nations around them than the nation that was following God. This is unprecedented, and it's a disastrous event in the Israelite nation. Let's continue on here and read these next couple of verses. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, this is what happens. Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken. And he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now there, there's some amazing wordplay here in the Hebrew language that we should note. The word of glory in the Hebrew is kavad, right? And, and, and so we see this, it's essentially the word is this glory is the heaviness of God on his people, let's say. And the ark represented God's glory. The the ark represented God's heaviness, his weight on his people. Right? And we we see that here. His presence amongst the people. Purposefully, this is the same word the author uses to describe Eli as being heavy. Kaved. Rather than giving God the glory, Eli had become fat on the sacrifices. Remember we talked about he and his sons were eating the food that was supposed to be sacrificed to God. And here we see that Eli had become an old, fat, blind man sitting by the gate. God often removes his glory from us in order to draw us back to our knees in worship and repentance and that's where God's people needed to have been. Now picking up in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. It's not going well for this family as we've seen. Both of his sons dies. He dies. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, don't be afraid for you have born a son, but she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband, and she, and she said the glory of has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. I, I can't help but feel sorry for this, this poor woman. I mean, she was probably already living in a, in, a, in a pretty wounded state, knowing what her husband had done. Back in chapter 2, again, we saw that her husband had been committing adultery or even sexual abuse uh, in the town. And he was married. And she's at home. And it says in chapter 2 that everybody knew this was going on. So again, imagine how she must have felt. Not only that, but he had become a stain upon the entire nation in his disregard for God in all aspects. And yet God was the one who continued to show up 
for his people. And, and now the child of this shell of a man uh, has given her, uh, is now going to lead to her own death. So in normal circumstances, the birth uh, of a son is the ultimate triumph, especially for the woman of this time. Remember back to chapter one where Hannah wanted a son so desperately because that son would carry on the name. It would be the inheritance of the family. And yet here we have uh, the, the, the women who are attending to her trying to comfort her with this information that your son has been born, but she could not be consoled. Now, what we do notice by her statement here is that her theology is probably better than the priests, her husband, her father-in-law, and probably a lot of the, the men in that land. For she understands the significance and the weight of the loss of the ark. God's covenant. God's a dwelling place amongst the people. And she speaks of that twice. God's glory and his favor are now no longer in Israel. That representation that they loved and, and, and wanted to use as their good luck charm. Right? That represented God dwelling among his people was now gone. And it's gone from Israel because it was captured by the Philistines in battle. There was only one thing to do then. There's only one thing for the people to do now. They need to repent. They need for that to come. But this is where that chapter ends today. And so the story will continue on over, like I said, these next few weeks and months. And we'll get to learn from it. But if we turn back to Joshua chapter 7, we're told of the defeat of Israel uh, to a nation called Ai. So I don't know if you've read Ch- uh, John, uh, Joshua before, you might know of this story. But God had allowed them to be defeated because of the sin of one man named Achan. Okay, so if you know the story of Joshua, this might sound familiar. Israel was going up in battle against Ai. There was a man who was in sin, Achan, uh, and, and Israel suffered loss. Although not perfect, Joshua's response was to go to God. So he acted in a different way than we see the leadership in this story act. He asked God, why did this happen? And cried out in despair. And and all the while he was on his knees before the Lord. And the Lord did tell Joshua what had happened. Why he had allowed them to be defeated. He also told Joshua how to deal with the sin that was going on amongst the people, the children of Israel. This was a story that every Israelite in Samuel's time would have known. They would have known how their people had come out of Egypt and what had happened in battle and what sin had cost them in the past, and yet they continued on. The response that every Israelite top to bottom should have had after they suffered defeat, the 4,000 should have been repentance. And yet we see they moved on and they heaped more sin upon their original sin and said, we're going to use the presence of God uh, as a weapon for us. Their self-reliance, their fake religiosity, their lack of revere for the Lord showed throughout this story. They needed to repent. They needed to turn from their way and that and, and yet they didn't. They continue to move forward as a people separating themselves from God. 
couple of things quick that we can look at that, that from this story and maybe that we can ponder this week as we move forward. Uh, we, we know that God takes sin seriously. We know that in a couple of ways. We know the gospel, right? The gospel is present in all four of the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to earth to deal with sin. And God knew what it was going to cost. His son as a sacrifice on the cross. And yet, Jesus came anyways. Amen to that. The gospel. But there was a heavy cost for sin. And we know that God takes sin seriously because of the cost that it took. And, and these works were done in love. And, and, and in that relationship that's created between us and God through Jesus Christ on the cross, the grave, and then the empty tomb, we need to respond in certain ways. And we need to take sin seriously too. When leadership sins, consequences roll downhill. We saw that in the story today. And so to make that just a little more personal and to give you that one last thing to think about this week as you leave here, moms and dads, I want to ask you today, how is your leadership in your family? How is your leadership affecting your children? Are there some areas that you could do a little bit better that you could tighten up on? The leadership that spouses have amongst each other in different ways we lead each other. Are we leading in a God-honoring way? Ministry leaders, is there sin in your life that's undealt with? Maybe you're uh, uh, working with the youth group or maybe you're helping lead children's ministry. Is there sin that's in your life that's undealt with? And do you need to get control of that and repent of that today? community group leaders some of you open up your home and and we come into your home and we sin under your guidance and your teaching throughout the week and 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 we appreciate that but you are in a place of leadership and we try to make sure everybody knows that when they volunteer to be a part of that but you're in leadership and is your group failing to to thrive because of unconfessed sin things that you need to deal with in your own life If you find yourself in this unrepentant sin this morning, there's only one thing to do, and that's to go to the Lord and repent. And so that's an open invitation that goes to all of us. If there are things in our lives that are holding us back from being what God has called us to be, today, go before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And ask for for his grace upon your life to change those things and move forward in that way.